Well, good morning, church. I'm Jim Jeffrey, one of the pastors here. Happy Fourth of July weekend. We're glad to have you assembling together with God's people. And we've already been worshiping and reflecting upon the truths that we've just sung. What a great song, the worthiness of our King and of our God that we've just sung about. One of the things that um, uh, the joys of being married to an interior decorator is that we um, spend a lot of time watching HGTV. And I pre-record it because I don't like watching the commercials. I just don't have the patience for it. But we watch a lot of it. And one of the things that's interesting on those shows, when they're doing a renovation, is the things they find behind the walls and under the floors that they didn't expect. So they've already got a plan. They've already got a budget. And then they find out there's termites. There's water damage. There's plumbing problems. There's electrical issues. There's foundational issues. And they have to make the phone call and say, folks, we have a problem. We have a problem. Well, in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's doing that again and again. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he's actually saying, we have a problem when it comes to your worship gatherings. And one of those problems is how you approach the Lord's table. So we're going to open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11, beginning at verse 17. We're going to stand together as we read the first part of this passage, all right? 1 Corinthians 11, starting with verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you might be recognized. When you come together, it's not for the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? I know I will not. You may be seated. So Paul is addressing here some very serious and dangerous issues in the church regarding the Lord's table. And I think for us, it causes us to kind of look at how do we prepare as a church, as an assembly, but also individually as we come this morning to the Lord's table. How do we do that? How do we recognize and restore the Lord's table in its proper place in our worship experience? The first thing we've got to do is we've got to recognize the problem. And Paul here begins in this passage to address the problem. He said, I do not commend you, verse 17. He'd use that word in verse 2. He's basically saying, I don't praise you. I don't applaud you. I'm not giving you high fives about the way you worship. I don't commend you because when you come together, he's saying, I, I want to confront rather than commend what's going on in your church. So Paul is going to use the most bold, blunt language he's used in the letter so far. He's going to be very blunt and he's going to say, listen, when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Now consider that for a minute. Five times in this passage, he talks about coming together. It's the assembly of the church. It's God's people getting together for the purpose of worship. But now Paul is saying, when you get together, you are actually worse off than before you came together. You actually, he said, it's doing more harm than good in your assemblies. Now just let that sink in a minute. So you come to church and you leave worse off spiritually than you came. That's what he's saying. This is a serious problem he's addressing. 
What was the problem? How bad was the problem? They were actually abusing the Lord's table. They were coming without their hearts and relationships prepared to come to the Lord's table. And he described what was going on. He said, um, listen, there are, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. There is disunity in the church. It was fractured, he says, by divisions. He said, I hear that there are divisions, there are factions among you. And Paul says, I believe this in part because it's going to show who's really a believer and who's not a believer. Paul really understood that not everybody in Corinth who attended church was a true Christian. And he's calling that out here, he said. It's going to actually show those that are really approved among you. He said, there must be factions in order to, to show those that are genuine among you might be recognized. And then he says, when you come together, you're not even coming together for the Lord's table. He says, your purpose, you've lost that. It's been eclipsed by your selfishness. There's some things we need to understand that were going on in Corinth here just culturally behind the scenes. The early church would often have a gathering um, before they would partake of the Lord's table, before they would worship, and they would call them an agape feast, which was a love feast. It was a communal meal that they would share together, and they would share one another the food, and they would share the beverages, and they would share together and fellowship together to prepare themselves to come to the Lord's table. That was their love feast. That was a very common thing in many of the churches in the first century. Only in Corinth, it had gotten really corrupted. Why? Because they had practiced some stuff in their culture before they became Christians that they now carried into the church. It, there was this, um, in the pagan temples, they would often have communal meals. Matter of fact, they didn't have a lot of restaurants that you would go to the temple to be able to have, if you were going out to eat, you go to the temple and do that. And, and they would have these communal meals with other worshipers in the pagan temples. Only it was set up with a social economic division. That was very Roman. That was very Greek in that day. So you would have people of wealth and affluence who would gather together and they would have a whole different menu. Everything they wanted to eat and they'd eat to the point of gluttony. Everything they wanted to drink and they would drink to the point of drunkenness. We need to understand that in the, in the Greco-Roman world and in Corinth, you didn't have a middle class of people like we're used to in America. You only had two classes. You had an upper class, landowners, very wealthy people. And you had people who were tradesmen, slaves and servants who worked the fields and, and did other responsibilities in the house. And that's how the culture was. That's how it was divided. Paul's teaching is that that should not divide the church any more than ethnicity ought to do it, any more than, than slave and, and free ought to do that. He's saying the church ought to be different than that. And yet this is what's happening. Look at how he describes this. He says, when you come together, it's not for the Lord's Supper, verse 20, verse 21, when you're eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. In other words, you're selfishly consuming the food. One goes hungry. Imagine that you're sitting next to someone in church and their stomach is growling, not because they've had too much to eat, because they've had nothing to eat. He says, so some of you are hungry, and he says, another one is drunk, literally. Imagine that, coming to the Lord's table and sitting next to someone that is just intoxicated. I remember my wife and I often would go to see the Messiah at Christmas time. One time we went to see the Messiah in Binghamton, New York, and uh, it was not in a church setting, it was just a cultural setting. And they had an open bar there, which that's up to them. But, but in, the, in this situation, the people sitting next to us were drunk, 
literally intoxicated, fell asleep through the whole thing. And I'm thinking, I don't think they get it. (laughs) I don't think they're here to worship the Messiah. I think they've missed the whole point. That's what was happening here. They were drunk and someone else was hungry. They were eating with gluttony and someone else was going without. He said, what do you, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? If you want to have that kind of party, do it at home. Look at what he says in verse 22. This is how serious the problem was. You're despising the church. You're despising the ecclesia, the assembly of the believers in the way you are selfishly treating one another. You're despising the church when you come together for the Lord's table. And he says, you are humiliating. You're shaming those who are poor, who have nothing to eat. What shall I say to you? He said, well, should I commend you? Should I praise you? Should I compliment you? Should I high five you? No. He said, I don't. I confront you. Because what you're doing is you've forgotten that when you come together at the Lord's table, we're doing that together. We're doing that with brothers and sisters in Christ. And to bring selfishness into that experience misses the very point of the great commandment. That there's a vertical aspect of that. We're to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. But we're also to love one another. So friends, when you come to the Lord's table, one of the things you need to do is to gain a perspective. To gain a perspective. When I was a lot younger, um, as an adult, I, I enjoyed photography. Matter of fact, I had one of those cameras that you actually had to put film in. A 35 millimeter single ref- reflex camera, and I had a dark room, only for black and white. As, as our, our kids got a little bit older, I didn't have time to do it, so I sold the whole thing and just got a little, a little camera. Years later, when I left the church I pastored here in Grand Rapids to go to Clark Summit, the church, as a, as a parting gift, gave me my first digital camera. And man, it was so cool. I enjoyed that until I found out as, as uh, phones got better, my phone took better pictures than my digital camera and it was actually easy to, easier to store it on. So I sold that camera and kind of stayed away from it. I just wasn't into photography until recently. You see, um, I take some motorcycle trips with some guys and there's some great places to take pictures. I'm also going for the very first time to Israel with my son, and I want to take some pictures. And I found out our grandson, who's 15 years old, who's an absolutely great amateur photographer, he has studied it, he takes great photographers. He was going to be selling his camera, his Canon Rebel camera. And so I said, I want to buy it when you sell it. You name the price, I'll buy it. And he just gave me a great deal, and I now have a camera, and I'm back into it. But here's the thing, my 15-year-old grandson is teaching me photography. By the way, if you're my age, my generation, I hope you're willing to learn from your kids and your grandkids, because they can teach you a lot. My 15-year-old grandson is teaching me photography. And I'm, I actually said, that's part of the deal. If I buy this camera, you have to teach me. You have to teach me. One of the things I'm regaining an understanding of is this thing called perspective. Perspective is when you take a picture, you're trying to take something that's going to appear two-dimensional and make it three-dimensional. And you do that, you do that by looking at all the dimensions of depth and height and width and breadth, and you're looking at all of that, and so you're going to get something that you're focusing on, and this is the thing that you want to be central to the picture. You may have it off to the side, but that's what you're really shooting. And then you want something in the foreground, 
Like if you're shooting a nature scene, you may frame it with some branches from a tree. And then you want something in the background that may be a mountain or something that's over there. And so it gives it perspective. When it comes to the Lord's table, friends, we need perspective. I want you to say with me, we need perspective. We need perspective. And the first perspective we need is a perspective of looking around. Say that with me, looking around, looking around. We need to look around and see one another with unselfish love. Friends, when you come to the Lord's table, the reason we do that together, the reason we assemble together for the Lord's table rather than individually is because we are to do it together. We do it in community. We share with one another. So I need to look around and say, I cannot be selfish and unloving in my treatment of you. I cannot be selfish and unloving in my family. I can't be selfish and unloving with my siblings. I can't be selfish and unloving within my small group. So I want to ask you this morning, as you gain perspective by looking around, who are you in a broken relationship with right now that you haven't done everything you can to restore and forgive? In your marriage, are you acting selfishly at home or are you showing that kind of love with your siblings at home? or those that are grown? Are you showing that kind of unselfish love? Is there a broken relationship in this church and you have not gone to restore that relationship? Friends, we need to look around. We need to look around. Because in the church, coming to the Lord's table ought to be a time of pushing the reset button on perspective. I need to look around. I need to look around. Paul then begins to address this problem by saying we need to remember Christ's sacrifice. In verse 23, he goes back to the gospel account when Jesus gathered with the disciples in the upper room celebrating the Passover and then brought new meaning to that and established the Lord's table. He said, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Talking about when Paul was there and and was establishing the church and taught them about the Lord's table. That the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread. So in Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, in each of those three, what we call synoptic gospels, because they have so much common material, we have the Lord's table established. Matthew 26, Luke, Mark 14, Luke 22. And in each of those, Jesus actually establishes what we now have come to call the Lord's table. And Paul here unpacks it in verse 24. He said, when he had given thanks, he took the bread and expressed gratitude to God. He broke it He said, this is my body. This represents my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In other words, the the bread that we will partake of later represents the incarnation of Christ. Represents that body that he was born in as a virgin when God became flesh and dwelt among us. It is unleavened because he is sinless. And it reminds us that he in that body lived In that body, he did miracles. In that body, he taught. And in that body, he went to the cross to die for us. And the the bread represents all of that, that God's glory came down, manifest, wrapped in the human body of Jesus, full of grace and truth, his body. And then he took the cup, and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel had prophesied there was coming a new covenant. 
This covenant, God was going to not write his word in the tablets of of the stone and the law, but write it upon our hearts. He was going to put the Holy Spirit inside us. He was going to forgive our sins. He was going to become a father to us. And we would have this relationship with him called a new covenant relationship based on the grace of God. Paul makes much of that in his letters, particularly 2 Corinthians 3. The book of Hebrews makes a great deal about it. Jesus establishes the new covenant. When he's there in the upper room, he says, this shed blood, all of the sacrifices of the past, all of the lambs, bullocks that had been killed, all the blood had been shed through all of that time period now comes to fruition in this moment, remembering you, reminding you of my blood of my blood. And he says, by doing this, he said, this cup is a new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So he said that in verse 24, remember me. Verse 25, remember me. So friends, the Lord's table is a time of looking around. Say with me again, look around. It's also a time of perspective by looking back. Say looking back looking back. Perspective of looking around, perspective of looking back. I look back at the cross and I remember that when Jesus suffered and died there and cried out in agony, not just physically, but spiritually, when he was separated from his father and separated from the Holy Spirit for the first time of all of eternity, when he had took upon himself the wrath of almighty God against my sin and your sin. That as we remember that, we remember that he paid the price that we could be redeemed from the slavery of our sin. He paid the price that we could be forgiven of the debt of our sin. He paid the price so that that I could be and you could be made righteous before the God who was our judge. That the very wrath of God that would have cost me eternity in hell, Jesus absorbed on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that as he died on the cross, he said, it is finished. And when I remember him, I'm remembering all of that with gratitude and worship. For Jesus as my substitute, as a lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm remembering his body. I'm remembering his blood. And so then he says, we're to do that, Paul said, we're to do that until he comes. The end of verse 26, until he comes, until he comes. Jesus in the upper room in Matthew's gospel said, I will not partake of this fruit of the vine, making very clear that it wasn't turned into literal blood, but it was symbolic. It was a memorial I will not partake of this fruit of the vine again until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So not only do we look around and look back, but we look ahead. Say, look ahead. Look ahead. Now, let me tell you what's happening here. There is so much taking place when Jesus established the Lord's table. He's taking the Passover and the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, bringing it into this. But he's also telling us we need to look forward until he comes. Jesus is using terminology here, and Paul is is relating to that, about a Jewish wedding. Ladies, I want to just break news to you. I've just done a wedding this weekend. I've done, I think, seven weddings I'm doing this year, and I love doing weddings. 
But I, I learned a long time ago that the center of, a, of an American wedding is the bride. Can't change that. It's the way it is. It's all about the bride. Grooms, you show up. You got to be there. But it's all about the bride. Ladies, I want to just break it to you. In a Jewish wedding, especially an ancient Jewish wedding, it's all about the groom. Matter of fact, the bride didn't even know what day she was getting married. They would have a betrothal service. Most marriages were arranged. They would have a betrothal service with the, the groom's family and the bride's family. And there would be a feast and there would, be, there would be a cups and they would exchange the cups. And then the groom would go to his father's house and prepare a place for his bride. That's what Jesus said in John 14. I go to prepare a place for you. And he would prepare an apartment or another dwelling on his father's property. And then when that was done, he would gather his friends, sometimes in the evening, torchlight parade. He would go down the main street and they would cry out, behold, the bridegroom comes. And the bride had to get ready fast because it was her wedding day. And, and usually the, the feast would, would last a whole week. And, and this would be just a great event. And so Jesus is here using that language of a bridegroom. And he says, until he comes and he's going to drink it new with you at the marriage supper of the lamb, I'm going to drink it new with you. So we look around and gain perspective. We look back and gain perspective. We look ahead and gain perspective when it comes to the Lord's table. So say those three things with me again. We look around, we look back, and we look ahead. Now, there's something else that Paul's going to say beginning in verse 27. He said, whoever therefore eats this bread or drinks this cup, the Lord's table, in an unworthy manner. Up until this point, it would say, I'm not looking around. I'm not looking back. I'm not looking ahead. That would be an unworthy manner. I'm not preparing myself for that. And he says, you will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of Christ. That's a serious matter. He's saying, listen. You don't understand what you're doing when you, when you trivialize the Lord's table. You are actually bringing guilt upon yourself for not respecting the Lord's table, not worshiping as you rightly should. In other words, this is familiarity bringing contempt. And, fr and friends, lest we think this just happens in Corinth, it happens today. There's times in church when you're taking, you've got the elements in your hand, and you're thinking about what are we having for lunch today? Who's playing in the NFL? Not in this season. What, you're thinking about what you're going to do the rest of the weekend. Your, your mind is someplace else. You're not, you're not remembering. You're not looking around. You're not looking back. You're not looking ahead. And you're then taking the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. Paul says if you do that, you are guilty about the body and blood of Christ. That's, that's Paul's words. That's what the word of God says. We can't change it. So he said, what should I do instead? He said, let a person examine himself. Let a person examine himself. The idea here is that we need to test ourselves in order to be approved by God. And in the context of what he's saying here, I think it does talk about examining myself internally. In other words, taking time to let the Spirit of God, to invite the Holy Spirit to search me and see if there be any wicked way in me. To examine my life and say, is there any unconfessed sin in my life? But it also means looking around and saying, are there any broken relationships? I need to examine both internally and relationally what's going on. He said, if we don't do that, we're in the danger of not discerning the body. Whoever eats and drinks without discerning the body. I really believe that Paul's reflection on the body here isn't talking about the body of our Savior and in incarnation, but the body of Christ, meaning the church. 
You're not discerning. You're not respecting the church and its relationship. And he says, you're drinking judgment upon yourself. Paul in verse 30 says, that's why many of you are weak physically and ill, you're sick, and some have died. Let me explain this a little bit. There's times in the Bible when God does something to make a point. And if he did that in every case, it would be, it'd be a, a, quite, a, quite a tragedy. Example, Acts chapter 5, you have a couple. And, and this couple sell their land and decide they're going to keep part of it back and they're going to give part of it. And that was their choice to do. But they presented it as if they were giving everything. And both of them were killed by God on the spot. That's how they had lied to the Holy Spirit. That's what Peter and the apostles said. And they were killed on the spot. Friends, if God did that every time somebody gives with wrong motives, there'd be a lot more funerals in the church. So here he's saying, these people are coming to the Lord's table and not being prepared. And some of them are sick and diseased. And some of them have died. And God says, I want to make a point here about how I want you to prepare for the Lord's table. Friends, I believe if God did that in every case, there'd be a lot more people in the hospital from the church and there'd be a lot more funerals in the church. I'm serious. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying that this is a serious matter. He says, but if we judge ourselves, truly we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined because we are his children that we might not be condemned. So Peter says, judgment must begin at the house of God. So the church is to come under God's judgment. We are to, we are to examine ourselves and accept God's discipline in our lives so that we are not condemned in the future judgment that's going to come, meaning the, the great white throne judgment and what's going to happen in the lake of fire. He says, we need to examine ourselves as a church. The believer's self-examination and discipline happens now. The unbeliever's judgment happens in the future. And Paul says, listen, you need to examine yourselves. So we need to look around. We need to look back. We need to look ahead. But we also need to look inside to examine ourselves in terms of our own personal sin and to examine ourselves in terms of our relationship with another. But there's one more look that needs to happen. Paul says, so then, my brothers, when you come together, when you assemble to eat, he said, wait for one another. Don't do what you're doing. Be unselfish. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And about the other things, I will give directions when I come. So when Paul has talked about judgment and discipline from God, he's reminding us there's one more look we need to have, and that's to look up. So just review with me a little bit, okay? We're to look around. We're to look. We're to look. We're to look. And we're to look. We're to look up and worship. We're to look up and worship. And friends, when we look up and worship, when we partake of the Lord's table today, we look up and we recognize that right now in heaven, there is a, there is a worship scene that is happening. Angels are around the throne of the triune God. Millions of people are there singing. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. And we look up 
and say we join our hearts and we join our voices and we join our praise and we join our gratitude with them because we're going to be there someday, so we need to get tuned up. Maybe you can't sing and carry a a tune in a bushel basket. You will be able to be then because you're going to have a glorified body, which will include a glorified voice box. So we'll all be able to join in that chorus, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And we're going to look up and we're going to do that. Friends, um, if you were to go to upstate New York where my wife and I lived for six years and then before that in our, our home a little further upstate, You'd go north of Binghamton on Interstate 81 and you'd go through a little tiny community. Matter of fact, there's nothing there but a gas station today and, and one little white church. The town is called Castle Creek, New York. Not important you know that, but the church that is there started in 1818. It is 205 years old. One of my mentors was the interim pastor in that church. And because he's a historian, he got a hold of the records and found out that the church clerks back in that day kept a very accurate record of everything that happened in the church. Imagine 205 years worth of records. And one of the things he discovered is that in that church, every time revival broke out, a spiritual awakening took place. It had to do with the Lord's table, with communion. Matter of fact, their practice in that church was to gather and assemble together on Saturday night for a time of confession and repentance and heart preparation. And as they would have that service and prayer and confession and, and, and forsaking sin, they would then come together on Sunday morning at the Lord's table. And that was when, if, in, in the history of the church, every time there was a spiritual awakening, that's when it happened. Why? Because they came with perspective. You look in the Old Testament, and every time there was a spiritual awakening in Israel, they reestablished the Passover in its rightful place. Friends, I believe that one of the things God wants to do in this church to continue the movement of God, to continue the spiritual awakening, is that every one of us, and together corporately, we put the Lord's table back in its place that it should be. Together with baptism, which pictures the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's why we practice baptism by immersion. It is the only one that, that shows that. And the Lord's table, because in the Lord's table, we're going to be picturing Christ's body and Christ's blood. So friends, I want to invite you right now. Just bow your heads, but especially your hearts before God. And I want to invite you to restore perspective on the Lord's table. In this moment of prayer, I want to ask you to, first of all, not with your eyes, but within your heart, look around. With whom do you have a broken relationship? With whom do you have unresolved conflict? You're holding grudges and you need to forgive. You're acting selfishly within your marriage or with your siblings. Broken relationship within your small group. People in the church that you're not talking to. Friends, I'm calling you right now to confess that to God, to repent of it, and commit to God before this day is done. You will go to that person and make it right. With humility and confession. 
Some of us, we need to look back and, and, and not be undistracted when we partake of the Lord's table and to remember what happened on the cross and the price that was paid by Jesus on the cross when he suffered and died and then cried out, it is finished. The price is paid for you and for me. Friends, we need to focus on that. We need to reflect on that. We need to look back. We need to look ahead. Our bridegroom is coming back. He's preparing a place for us. He could come back today. He could come back at any time. Are you living ready? Are you living faithfully in a love relationship with him? He's coming back. Are you looking ahead? Are you looking inside? Is there unconfessed, unrepented sin in your life? Anger? Prayerlessness? Greed? Lust? Love of money? Having no time for God to be in his word? What are those areas of sin that God's calling you right now, this moment, to confess and to repent of? Look inside. Examine yourself. And friends, when we look around and we look back, when we look ahead and we look inside, we're ready to look up and to join our hearts and our souls with those that are before his throne right now singing, Worthy is the Lamb. Because friends, when we get there, we're going to know it's not about us. It's all about him. It's all about him. And so, Father, as we come to remember the love that was shown to us in Christ and the death of your son in our place, may we truly look around living out the great commandment and loving one another in our homes and your church. May we look back and remember what Jesus did, how he fulfilled every prophecy, how he fulfilled every type, every sacrifice as he shed his blood on the cross. May we look ahead anticipating our bridegroom coming back. May we look inside with true confession and repentance. And may we look up with praise and worship to the one who alone is worthy. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.